Hi guys, and welcome back to the podcast. Um, this is guest interview number 17, with the same guest we had on for guest interview number 16, which was the um, managing uh, post-show recomp episode with uh, Dr. Dean, which was about three months ago, actually. It was the weekend of the PCA British, because I was sat in an Airbnb recording it with you in Hull. Um, Dean, how are you, mate? I'm good, Cal. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. Um, today, we're going to basically, this is something, the topic we've been discussing, you know, between myself and Dean, I've been speaking to Joe a fair bit about it as well, um, with the concept of, um, the, the whole concept of blasting and cruising within the assisted world of bodybuilding, um, and how potentially there is um, some information now, which is, you know, pretty public, publicly common, which is quite misconstrued in terms of um, the logical nature in which people are approaching um, cycling, potentially on and off drugs, or potentially in reality not cycling off drugs at all. Um, let, let's kind of first introduce the topic as to where this term originally may have come from and, and what it's kind of evolved into since. Yeah, so blasting cruising, as far as I can recollect, possibly started with Dan Duchenne. We all know Dan Duchenne is the, you know, the chemical wizard of the early 90s. Basically, with blasting cruising, the concept is that you blast at a high superphysiological level. So you take high quantities of anabolic steroids to yield you know, favorable changes in your physique. And then you cruise where you take time off that superphysiological blast dose. But somewhere along the way, it's after getting, as we said, misconstrued and that people think that you cruise at dosages which would see you outside the physiological range. Mm. So, for example, you may blast at 600 milligrams of testosterone and that would yield a testosterone level of, say, somewhere over 100 nanomolar for average population. And then they might cruise on half the dose at 300 milligrams which again would probably see your level somewhere around 60 nanomolar. Now, the issue there is that you're still staying in the superphysiological range. There there's no break towards any of the physiological processes that require you know, a physiological level of testosterone. Mm. Um, I guess it's very difficult to see the logic as to why it was developed in the first place when we apply it to average populations so to you know normal average amateur bodybuilders in the context of say a professional bodybuilder yes there may be some merit to that style of anabolic use because obviously that is a profession and that is probably the accepted responsibility of that individual to understand that there is appreciable risks to staying in that super physiological range long term mm. i think the more appropriate way to phrase this which I've been saying for a while is a cycle and then TRT. So you cycle your anabolic use, you go into the super physiological range, you make physique improvements based on you know, the angiogram receptor activation. You stay at that level of dosages for a period of time based on you know, your blood work and health. And then you return to the physiological range. So obviously you are going to lose some muscle mass based off the loss of annual receptor activation from being at the superphysiological range. Yeah. But you're returning into a physiological range where bodily processes 
can recover. For example, we know our cardiovascular health, our lipid metabolism, um, levels of inflammation, they all can be driven um, out of control by superphysiological levels of androgens. So by returning to a physiological range into the quote-unquote natural range, we're allowing those physiological processes to return to baseline and regain some health. Um, I guess we need to, again, we're comparing a professional setting versus the normal average population. But I think with how the information is being spread on forums at the moment, it's quite irresponsible what is being regarded towards blasting and cruising versus, you know, the cycling TRT. Yeah. And people who sort of, you know, for me, recommending the cycle TRT route often gets ridiculed based on the fact that, oh, I'm going to lose my muscle mass um, that I've built while on cycle. But then on the flip side, you have to consider then, is that in fact then a psychological factor? Is it a psychological addiction to compounds? Because you cannot afford to allow yourself to go to that physiological range, you know, that natural range, because you're going to lose that certain level of size that you may retain when you're in the super physiological level. Mm. I, I had that. I, well, I, remember, I remember speaking to you after, um, after prep, and I had that myself after, after prep last year. Where it was like, you know, if I'd been if I'd been on seven hundred milligrams of testosterone for twelve weeks during prep, like psychologically to then drop down to one hundred and twenty five a week is is a pretty big thing to to deal in your head because you know physio like physiologically that that look is is never going to be maintainable on that level of drugs. Yeah, and I mean even myself, like we we seen that sort of happen after our recent push in yeah. that. You know, we, we ran our 11-week building phase and then we've allowed, you know, a certain period of time for compounds to clear and then you resume, you know, in the, into the physiological range again. And of course, you're going to lose some level of muscle mass because of that loss of androgen receptor activation, like we said, and the loss of nitrogen retention. But as I said, if you can accept that psychologically, you're going to only improve because your health is going to be in a better position next time you push again. So of course you're going to lose some size, but we do know that there is inherent muscle memory in that when we reactivate the satellite cells through the androgen receptor activation, when we go back on a cycle, we gain that tissue quite fast again. Yeah. And I mean, the, the best example, and people can even look at this, would be Kevin Lavroni. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin Lavroni quit bodybuilding uh, like some, somewhere around the early 2000s and resumed competing 12 to 15 years later. And within six months, had nearly regained most of the size that he had uh, during his early career. Yeah. So, I mean, we can see that there are uh, certain, you know, um, approaches that we can regain tissue quite fast again based on what we previously held because of that purported muscle memory mm. um, I guess as well like again Kevin Lavrone is another example in that you know back when he was competing he'd blast he'd run a cycle for four to five months pre-Olympia and then he'd stop bodybuilding come off either we don't know the full extent of whether he came off fully and ran PCT or you know come off and ran small dose TRT but he took four to five months away from bodybuilding before going back on again. And again, year in, year out, he always brought an impressive physique to the Olympia stage. Um, so 
I guess it's it's just what's being put out there at the moment is quite irresponsible. Yeah. And those who are, I guess, preaching the concept of you know blasting and cruising have slightly have a slightly more irresponsible approach to anabolic use. And it's sort of like, you know, the, the training argument of, oh, well, Dorian didn't do that. And it's sort of like, you know, well, the guys in the 90s didn't do that. And I was like, well, how do you know? Yeah. Like, there's so much Chinese whispers on forums that there, half the time there isn't any logical science applied. And it's the same, you know, you could take that, for example, with the PCT, with my approach, wait for all the compounds to clear. So it could be five weeks for an anti and then do your PCT as opposed to everyone arguing with you on forums of, no, bro, you wait two weeks and then you do your PCT. It's like, where's the science being applied here? I mean, we've gained that much knowledge in the last 10 years um, with published papers around an anabolic use, you know, the effects of testosterone, nandrolone on bodily function that it would be, you know, ignorance to ignore the science. And I know, you know, it's, it's also as well, you know, if, if you go back to the whole argument of, you know, the, the guys in the 80s and 90s may, may not have approached like this, but then we've got to look at the accessibility we have now to the ability to monitor health markers, blood work, etc. And with the click of a finger, we can have blood work done in a week's time. Whereas, you know, 25 years ago, that potentially would have been quite hard to actually access in the first place for most people. Yeah, I mean, it would have, it would have required um, doctor's supervision. Yeah. And for, you know, an average population or amateur bodybuilder, there was probably a quite a heavy, heavily attached stigma to the use of AAS. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been as approachable in that you could have went to your doctor and said, oh, I'm running such and such compounds, I need to get my blood work done. You would have probably been shown the door by the doctor because of the stigma attached. Yeah. And we still even see that stigma to an extent in that people are going the private blood work route because of... Um, you know, being pressurized by their, their GP to, you know, why are you using these compounds? I'm not condoning this use. I'm not supporting your use, so I'm not doing your blood for you. Um, and again, it's, it's sort of shocking to see people have opinions that, you know, why would we look at blood work? Or, you know, blood work could be wrong. And to me, that's sort of like burying your head in the sand. That's sort of an approach to to your health basically you know ignorance is bliss mm. if i don't know what's going on in my body then you know i'm not going to have any subconscious thoughts surrounding you know maybe i'm not making the best choices here um like we know for example like we, we get our blood work done okay in certain scenarios blood work you know you're looking at what's in the serum at the moment it gives us a rough accurate picture of what's happening in the body it's not going to tell you exactly what's going on um you know, towards cardiovascular health. So you get your bloods done, you're going to get your lipid panel, you're going to get your HSCRP for inflammation, uh, and you may get, you know, in certain cases, someone might be um, very tempted to check troponin, which is an inflammatory marker towards, um, you know, if, if the heart has an infarction, levels of troponin, which is like an inflammatory marker, as they said, increase. So you can sort of dictate, you know, if there's any sort of risk heading towards heart attack. Yeah. Now that gives you an idea of what's going on in serum. So you look at your LDLC. I mean, you know, you know, higher levels of LDLC have correlation to cardiovascular disease and mm. arteriosclerosis. 
but we can't accurately say, oh, you know, you're two months away from having a heart attack based on your blood work. That's where, you know, a more investigative approach comes into. And like what I said, when we done the first series of pharmacology, you need to be accurately measuring, you know, your cardiovascular health from an overview of the structure of your heart through an uh, echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of your heart, which actually shows what's happening to the physiological function of how your heart is pumping each of the four chambers. Then you might get an accurate answer as towards what your heart, so you, you'd see left ventricle hypertrophy there. And then you'd be able to say, okay, well, there's a certain risk there that your heart, you know, if you continue this use for another five years, you could be ending up towards heart failure. Yeah. Um, and then you combine that with, say, a calcium score test, which measures, you know, the level of calcium within your arteries, which we can try and correlate to plaque formation. So although blood work isn't going to be completely accurate, it gives you a picture of what's sort of going on at the moment. If we see the lipid panels out of whack, then we can almost be sure that there is potentially some plaque formation happening in the background. Mm. And it's only using that whole integrative approach of monitoring your health from that 3D sort of view that you actually then can actually gauge your health. So to say that blood work isn't the be all and end all, I guess you're not really thinking outside the box in that we can assess health, but we just need to be intelligent of how we approach, how we monitor our health. Yeah. And I guess that's not what's being spoken about with people when they disregard blood work. In a, I guarantee if you ask any of these people that are pulling down blood work, have they had all these investigative tests done the last five years? The answer is probably going to be no. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, just, uh, it's just funny to see, in my opinion. Uh, like you said, it is, the, it is a case of blood work is a... Uh, it will give an indication of what to delve into deeper if there are red flags on a panel that then will allow you to say, right, well, this potentially is a concern. So if we look into this deeper, then we might actually find something. But if we don't find something, then we just need to keep a monitor of what's going on. on blood. Yeah, I mean, even like I gave the heart example, we go with the liver. So we know that the liver has potential to regenerate based on buccal stem cell infiltration. Mm. So we have this um, store of... Um, stem cells within our body when we have um liver inflammation and hepatocyte death these stem cells can infiltrate the liver and repair the damage before yeah. cirrhosis or scarring occurs what people fail to realize is that androgen receptor activation blocks that from happening mm. so if you cruise at super physiological levels and you ran say a heavy oral course in your blast when you return to a cruise you're not giving your liver the chance to heal. And that drives me mental when people are like, oh, you just cruise on 300 milligrams. But say you blasted dianabol and uh, oxymetolone or anadrol, whatever you want to call it, during your cycle. Um, when you return to your cruise, which is still at a super physiological level, your liver isn't getting the chance to heal properly. Yeah. Um, and then we wonder why we see certain case studies reported in the literature of bodybuilders with liver carcinoma. And it's because of that fact that the stem cells can't infiltrate the liver and repair. And yeah. again, blood work, like blood work will allow us to assess risk towards the liver in that we can then monitor 
um, alkaline phosphatase levels, ALP, because we know that ALT and AST aren't really indicative towards overall liver health because of the level of ALT and AST in our muscle tissue. Yeah. So we can objectively assess ALP and see where that is as a potential indication towards um, liver inflammation. We can then look at bilirubin to see it. Do we have elevated bile or do we have low bile? Um, again, what we covered during the pharmacology podcast, again, towards cholestasis and those bile ducts getting blocked and you get bile backflow killing liver cells. Um, that we can see in blood work. And again, the treaty approach to health, we can get a liver ultrasound. We can assess fatty you know fatty deposits within the liver to see do we have fatty uh, liver occurring which again is a silent killer it's very difficult to completely assess that someone has fatty liver based off blood work yeah. because you could have normal levels of alp ast and alt but you could still have um, pancreatic insufficiency where you're not releasing enough um, pancreatic enzymes because of these fatty deposits blocking that mechanism from happening. Yeah. And again, how you probably see that would be in, you know, advanced stool testing where we can look at the levels of digestive enzymes in our stool. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny when you just look at it from that perspective that no one's actually thinking outside the box. Yeah. It's just, you know, blast at 600 milligrams, cruise at 300, or, you know, this whole concept of, Blasting and then, oh, I'm going to cruise, but I'm going to cruise and I'm going to cruise on testosterone and prima bolin, masteron. Like you're still, you're still using synthetic androgens there within your, you know, cruise, as opposed to, again, using a bioidentical hormone like testosterone, but controlled in a physiological manner. Yeah. Yeah, the, the amount of, the, well, the, a lot of the consults I've had with you as well, where I've brought um, clients, client case studies to you, whether it's been a joint call or just me and you, um, where people have come into situations where they, they may have been taking you know, upwards of 600 milligrams while they were pushing and then they've just had the thought process, or oh, if I take half, then it's going to be sufficient. Whereas, you know, the consideration of where that actually puts them is, is, is not really a thought process at all. Yeah, I mean, like, we can't argue towards, you know, individual inter... Uh, you know, the variability between individuals in that we have to take into account age, um, muscle mass, previous compound usage. Um, but like I said, it still doesn't warrant having to cruise at a higher, um, higher than physiological range unless you are, like I said, potentially a professional bodybuilder or a high-ranking amateur who is trying to become a professional. So how, mu how much is that, when we look at like the inter-individuality of the ability to cruise on, say if, it was, if we were using an identical hormone and just taking a testosterone, how much variance would there be relative to, to body mass, et cetera, um, and other variables? Rel you know, if, I, if I were to take 125 milligrams, and I knew that would sit me at 25 nanomolar, somebody 350 pounds, like, would that mean that their ability to cruise on 300 milligrams but still put them in a, in a physiological range? Is that, is that variable or not? No, because you're still going to fall outside that physiological range. So, again, that 
comes down to the whole psychological factor, like I was discussing before. Yeah. And that, you know, you're using weight as a factor to stay at a higher dosage because obviously the higher dosage will yield more androgen receptor activation and, you know, tissue retention. So, for example, you're 300 pounds and we know that, okay, let, let's, let's for argument's sake say that if we kept you at um, a dosage of 300 milligrams and you're maintaining 300 pounds with no changes to diet of you know training and that you know we're, we're trying to create a maintenance baseline towards androgen use well then we obviously know that as soon as we drop down to 125 or 150 we're having the serum concentration of testosterone so there's going to be you know approximately half the androgen receptor activation yeah there is then potential there for strength loss and muscle mass decrease yeah but you're still you're still in that super physiological range so your body you know, prior to anabolic use, your body never operated in that range. So there was never, you know, a compensatory mechanism developed by your body to adapt to the higher hormone level for you to potentially, you know, quote unquote, cruise at. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, that's where, where I keep saying about the psychological factor and that, of course, if we set that as, you know, a maintenance baseline where 300 milligrams maintains a 300 pound person, cruising well that's okay i well not you can't say it's okay but in a roundabout manner if that person was a professional then of course they're gonna have to accept the liability risk yeah. of staying at that super physiological dose yeah. to maintain that size so that when they blast they're obviously gonna have higher levels of androgen receptor activation and again uh, room to progress in their off season yeah whilst they held that weight but again, that's not to say that holding that weight was a healthy choice because they've sat outside the, super, the physiological range. Yeah. Um, it, it is very complex. Like, I mean, I, I guess we are going to start seeing in the next 10 years the ramifications of people following this style of blasting and cruising towards health. Yeah, so like one of the one of the next episodes with um, Joe, we're going to dig into the literature we have on like long term AAS use and, and the ramifications on health long term. But actually, what literature we have available that's actually comprehensive and how 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 the fact that you know we don't actually have that much to go by at the moment. And in the next kind of twenty five fifty years, more of this stuff's actually going to be coming out telling us what's going on. Yeah, I mean it's it's. At this point, it's sort of a, an area of research that people are sort of falling away from. Um, we do have a couple of studies from uh, somewhere around 2012, 2013, surrounding um, following changes in um, cardiovascular function towards AS use and um, how AS use affects lipid metabolism. Um, how they you know, increase the potential for more LPA to be produced how we destroy HDL through, um, you know, creating more hepatic lipase in the liver. We have that sort of data available to us. Um, what we don't have available yet is any reported literature towards um, psychological case studies. Yeah. Um, again, through heavy androgen use, sort of potential from using nandrolone and trembolone. We, we do know there is literature there surrounding, you know, animal studies 
of how they affect um, certain regions of the brain in animals. And then obviously there is the, the one study surrounding nandrolone and its effect on IQ in males. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what data comes around now in the next few years towards people who have been using high levels of androgens, both in a blast and, you know, a cruise phase. Yeah. 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 One thing that I wanted to discuss that's an interesting point that we were discussing together the other day was if we look at the, like, as a, as a, as a, as a complete picture now, we look at the value of cruising in a physiological range, so what, what a, what a quote-unquote like cruise should be, or it should really be called like blasting in TRT, shouldn't it really, but what a cruise should be within a physiological range versus coming off and running a PCT doing that every single time so you basically push into a super physiological dose and then those that believe you know after that super physiological period of time you should pct and come completely off is there is there any value to the pct relative to cruising in a in a physiological range restorative process happening given the fact that during that pct a there could be complications there in the first place and b through that pct we're going to have to run Anti-rheumatizing drugs. We're going to have to run clomid. Like they they've got their own individual ramifications on health as it is, and the brain. Yeah, I mean, it always comes back to this, and I always put this example forward to people. What's the difference between having a testosterone level of twenty nanomolar as a natural versus having a testosterone level of twenty nanomolar using testosterone as yeah. an injection? There is no difference, other than when you take the injection, obviously your HPTA is going to be shut down. So you're going to have, you know, less potential for um, the Sertoli cells to make sperm based off FSH. But again, that's the risk that you accept anyway when you shut down your HPTA. Yeah. But in a physiological setting, there is no difference between 20 nanomolar from bioidentical testosterone as an injection. Um, I guess, like you said, if if you do this sort of style of a cycle and then a PCT straight away. It doesn't make sense if someone's going to cycle, you know, long term, you know, do one or two cycles per year. Potentially, then you could do a PCT because you have that period of time to restore full HPT function. Yeah. However, you know, a correct PCT, if if you don't get lucky. And when all the compound clears and your HPTA doesn't take over and you need to use pharmaceutical intervention, so, you know, gonadotropins, HCG, and then obviously go into the serum therapy, that can take up to 12 weeks to get you back to normal physiological function. Yeah. So, you know, you do your full PCT like that and take into account, you know, the five weeks for the esters to clear if you use, you know, long esters, that's 17 weeks, nearly half a year. and then. You know, you return to physiological baseline, your HPTA is operating as normal, and you go back on cycle straight away. Oh, my PCT was successful. I'm going to go back on cycle now. Well, like, what was the whole point of you going through that whole pharmaceutical intervention to restore your HPTA when you're just shutting it down straight away again? Yeah. Um, The only only logical thought process I would see with that approach is if you were going to come off for an extended period of time. Yeah, or if you were worried about fertility and you needed to increase endogenous FSH mm-hmm. to boost sperm production, 
Like, then, yes. You, like the situation you, know, you, you just had with, um, with Ollie. The same situation now. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I mean, you... You do that, so you're coming off to restore endogenous FSH to boost sperm production to ensure, you know, that you are at a natural baseline again for conception. Mm. Um, but from a, a health point perspective or this whole, your receptors need a break, man, or, you know, restore sensitivity to the compounds, that is just absolute BS. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've said this so many times before, your, your androgen receptors, don't need a break they don't down regularly or you don't need to confuse them with you know okay i used prima ball on my last cycle so now i need to use nandrolone oh but i use nandrolone so now i need to use trembolone your androgen receptors don't know what compounds are activating them mm. just the, the specific um transcription processes that happen as a result of the um the androgen receptor and um, the messengers that are created when we uh, activate the response elements yeah when when the androgen receptor gets activated it sends a response element to a particular gene and the gene turns on to create you know an mrna which then creates a a protein molecule which encodes for something that's all that your body sees depending on how strong that um compound binds to the receptor what effect it has Mm. it does not down regularly because you use so much trembolone or so much nandrolone. Just this whole fact of, you know, oh, I'm cruising to resensitize my androgen receptors to compounds is completely flawed. Yeah. Um, potentially, what, what happens, you have two scenarios. So androgen, respond, uh, androgen receptors, we covered this in the pharmacology um, podcast, they upregulate in response to a higher level of testosterone. Mm. And that's where we see the potential fact that when we are on a cycle that we may want to increase dosage because obviously when we increase the dosage, then we have an upregulation of animal receptors to accommodate the higher dosage and continue progress. Yeah. Or we have a period where we reduce the dose to a physiological range, as I said, and that again upregulates animal receptors because of there's no longer a higher threshold of androgen receptor activation. Yeah. Um, again, higher estrogen does the same thing and lower estrogen. So it's, it's completely flawed to say that coming off compounds to give your receptors a break um, helps. And they have this whole, you know, the use of DNP and antibiotics to upregulate androgen receptors. I don't know where these concepts came from. Mm. Um, like it's just the, the amount of bro science that's going around, I guess maybe from a, a logical point of view, take DMP, for example. You take DMP, you lose quite a lot of adipose tissue. Your insulin sensitivity is now restored to a higher extent than pre-DMP use. And now you go back and you use, you know, higher levels of androgens and you get this increased level of growth. Not because you cleared out receptors, but because you had better insulin sensitivity, you have less adipose. You get this, you know, quote unquote rebound that we may see from a leaner set point post, post-show from when we use higher levels of androgens. It's more of a responsive state, right? Yeah. Rather than the actual compound is having an effect at your receptors, like 
come on, like think logically of what's happening when you use these compounds. Yeah. Um, but I guess the, the PCT route, like I said, fertility side of things, or if you're coming off completely, if not, um, from a, a controlled health perspective, cruising at a physiological range um, may be wiser in that the PCT itself might also manifest things like metabolic syndrome, um, where you start to see insulin resistance, um, visceral fat deposition because of the low hormone environment, um, which again brings on its own issues towards health because of its, it's an inflammatory source of adipose. Um, so I guess you need to weigh up these pros and cons before you know a competitor that is going to use between off-season and pre-contest in order for health return to baseline, that TRT phase may be more so warranted than a PCT. Yeah, absolutely. And like the 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 reiteration of the fact that you know you need to you need to have a grasp of the mon the, the monitoring of blood work once you pull into this cruise to actually find out where you are and where you need to be to actually be in an appropriate range in the first place relative to those. And I mean, this is another thing where we apply logical um, pharmacology and pharmacokinetics in that, say you blasted with an antate and you dropped your quote-unquote cruise or you dropped a TRT, for example, because of the half-life of the enanti, it stays in your system for about four to five weeks. Yeah. So it takes about four or five weeks for you to level out to that physiological range. So if you apply that to your cruise where you think you're doing a cycle at 12 weeks and then you're running you know, your cruise phase for six weeks, well, you're really only cruising for about a week. And then going, okay, let's go back on cycle again. Yeah. Where five of that weeks, you're still at pretty much a, an appreciable super physiological range. So just because you ended your cycle at week 12 doesn't mean that you're not going to continue progressing for another two or three weeks Yeah. and then taking over into your TRT phase. So again, you do your cycle at 12 weeks, you've got like a four week balancing period and then you may do, you know, an, an eight week cruise at TRT. So altogether that's 12 weeks cycle, five weeks sort of clearance, eight weeks balancing three of 12 and 13 weeks. So you're sort of matching time on to time off, which is this old school philosophy of, you know, the time you stay on is the time you stay off. Yeah. But no, no one again takes that into account that, you know, they go straight into their cruise after their cycle. But again, they're only sort of um, reaching that cruise uh, range of where that compound is settling at week six before going, okay, I'm pushing again. Yeah. And again, I guess if you get bloods done during that period, um, that sort of six week clearance period, you're sort of looking at your blood work from a super physiological setting. So yes, you want to monitor your blood work when you're on cycle. So you obviously see what happens when you're in that super physiological range. Um, but you also want to monitor your health in that physiological range, post cycle so that we can see that health markers have reestablished their baseline. Yeah. Um, but if you do that during that clearance of that five to six week period, 
where you go straight from your cycle to your cruise and that six-week period post-cycle, you still have higher levels of androgens than if you had waited to, you know, the eight or nine week mark. Mm. And again, that's, that's where it gets very, I guess, misunderstood on all the forms that, you know, okay, I'm going to blast for 12 weeks. I'm going to cruise for six. I'm going to blast for 12. But you're not really coming off at all in that regard. And if we were strategic about this, if we had shorter time frames to work with, using a, a, a faster clearing ester would make sense if we did have a shorter period of time to work with in terms of the cruise itself. Yeah, I mean, like, so, say, for example, you've done your cycle and you use long-acting esters because of patient compliance and, you know, the, the lesser frequent injections. When you went then to your, your sort of, I don't like to use the word bridge, but that sort of period between ending your cycle and beginning that TRT phase, um, if you were to adopt faster acting esters at that point, when you enter into that sort of TRT phase, um, you're again going to be able to reach higher levels of androgen concentration using faster acting esters coming out of that cruise if you chose the likes appropriately as your blasting compound. Yeah. Um, so say, for example, you, you had your cycle, it was 12 weeks long. You have this sort of bridge phase of five weeks. You run your TRT phase for eight. And at the end of that TRT phase, um, you now realize that, okay, I'm going to prep later in the year. I've now only got, you know, an eight-week period here to, um, again, push to get some more improvement before I begin my prep. Well, in that setting, using a fast-tracking ester will get you back to higher levels of androgens faster than if you went the slower ester route. Yeah. You know, you're going to reach peak plasma levels with a propionate ester in two weeks, as opposed to an anti-weight in four or five. Yeah. So you have that period then for rapid progress, you know, to, to gain some traction towards your prep using the faster acting ester coming out of phase mm. again it all just comes back to the pharmacokinetics of these compounds and being able to understand you know how fast they work within our system yeah and then manipulating that to our favor based on our, our end goal yeah yeah because yeah because the, the same could be said for you know if you had a shorter period, period of time to actually cruise then that faster ester would allow for um you know a shorter bridging period of clearance and you need to actually get it get it out of your system and be in a physiological range quicker anyway yeah yeah and, that, and that, that's sort of another theory that people can apply towards if they go the route of my understanding towards pct that if you don't want to wait five weeks for all the compound to clear if you use the nante if you slowly taper across to a faster ester towards the end well then for for example propionate would be sort of out of your system within 20 days yeah as opposed to the five weeks so you sort of can initiate pct much quicker and but again that's just simple simple pharmacokinetics yeah sweet so take homes from today um in a in a summarized format to summarize the episode hit me hit me with three three key points okay so i guess number one the whole concept of blast and cruise, in my opinion, is like Chinese whispers. Yeah. Um, someone said such and such, and then everyone started believing it. 
without any logical application to science. And I know pro scientists have a different opinion or point of view towards people who have a scientific approach. But to me, that whole concept surrounding glass and cruising is, is irresponsible yeah. in, in what's being put forward by heavily influential people. Mm. Um, two, like I said at the start, it probably makes more sense to relabel this as cycle and TRT. Yeah. Cycle at superphysiological levels, return to physiological baseline with TRT. Um, that would negate having to do a PCT, but still allow physiological function to return. Um, and then three, um, I guess health management. Um, understanding that when you blast and cruise as it's, you know, put forward on forums and certain individuals, health doesn't get a chance to return to baseline. Understand that um, liver processes, um, production of hepatic lipase that destroys HDL, um, the liver stem cell regeneration, all these processes get affected when you're at superphysiological levels. Yeah. So if you go down this route of blasting and cruising at superphysiological levels, um, unless you have a warranted reason, as I said, maybe perhaps you're a top level amateur or a professional bodybuilder, for a standalone amateur, or I don't really like using the word recreational bodybuilder, no. but in that regard, in that regard, it doesn't make sense for you to cruise at superphysiological levels. Yeah. All that matters is how you look on stage if you are, are a, a you know, an amateur bodybuilder. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you retain a certain level of size year round, which again could then stem forward into potential psychological addiction and factors surrounding that. Yeah. So they're my top three. I think the um the the kind of relative importance of um the psychological aspect of this is one of the biggest factors for most people i think as well in terms of just the abilities like you build an identity on the certain way an individual looks and especially with the realms of social media and what people identify themselves to be having the ability to maintain that is 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 you know people depend on it um and i think the the whole concept of staying on those higher superphysiological doses and, and ranges for long, long periods of time is, is heavily related to that. Yeah, and I mean, even um, last year, there was a hinted post by Dante surrounding people staying on certain compounds year-round to maintain a grainy physique. Yeah. And I'm wondering why long-term they end up with kidney issues and liver issues. Yeah. Um, because of their either, one, psychologically, they're expected to have this certain look to their physique year round, either be through, you know, contracts with magazines or sponsors, or again, the, the pressure from social media. But again, that's a responsibility that has to be made or, or you know, accepted by a professional individual. If this is in the context of, you know, regular Joe that you work with in your office that's doing this year round to impress his friends, well, then it's, it's sort of like you're stemming really towards psychological issues here. Even though we know that there's no physical addiction, um, there could be a, 
a psychological dependence for that person to have, you know, peace of mind surrounding their physique because of using the compound. Yeah. Yeah. Massively. Wow. That's some big, big points in that. That was very good. Yeah, it's it's definitely, like I said, it's it's up to people to really think critically through their usage and actually understand what people are saying to them as opposed to just accept them blindly because someone looks a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. We need to uh, get you back on to do the um, thyroid episode as well. Yep, we will, we will discuss that as well. I keep, I keep meaning to come back to that. Yeah. That, 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 no, that'll be, a, that'll be an interesting one as well because we can apply it to so many different scenarios and even from a normal health perspective, thyroid metabolism for even natural physique competitors. Um, there's quite a lot to, to discuss there. So, yeah. yep, we, we will get that planned in course especially this time of the year when everyone's just about to start nailing t3 on prep as well it's <laughs> quite well timed I, I, I was recently told something funny that was uh again this is where forums become dangerous and we can discuss it more on that thyroid episode but one of the things someone messaged me about was and like i'm still shocked that someone could come out with this garbage but basically you dose T3 based on body weight. So you run one microgram per pound body weight. Jesus. To start your prep and then taper off as the prep continues. So imagine how much T3 you would have to use, nearly 300 pounds. So you're going to use 300 micrograms of T3 for the first three to four weeks of your prep. One earth. Now, let, let's not forget here that we have thyroid receptors within our heart so unless you want to end up in a and e with tachycardia from you know an irregular heartbeat being disrupted by such a surge of t3 that's insane how people are saying and like this is like you know pro secrets this is what the pros are doing when they're starting their practice like you really don't understand any appreciable level of hormone science at all wow that's dangerous though and then imagine, imagine that, so you go one microgram per pound T3, and then let's just throw DMP in to start, to start this, you know, <laughs> extreme fat loss phase. Yeah, definitely be extreme, that's for sure. Extreme health. <laughs> well. So, um, yeah, I, that's why I don't, I don't go on any forums at all, because I just end up banging my head off the desk with what I read. You'd be there all day commenting back. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm not in the mood even these days of getting into arguments with people because it's sort of like if you're going to choose to believe it, then I'm not going to be able to persuade your bias towards what you think is the actual science when in reality it's just all Chinese whispers. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks for that, Dean. Perfect, Carl. Thank you for having me on again. It's always good to be able to voice my opinion and for people to listen. Definitely, yeah, definitely. And uh, we'll get you back on soon for um, that thyroid episode as well. Perfect. Cheers, man. Just a quick shout out to um, sponsors. Me and Dean are sitting here in Supplement Needs hoodies. So um, obviously, for all of your supplement needs, plug. Muscle Mentors at a discount. 
And uh, like we said last time, Medichecks for blood work. We've spoken a lot about blood work in this episode. Uh, you get a, a nice discount on, on your bloods, particularly now um, it is kind of comp prep season. This is going to be even more so apparent or people mid through, midway through their off season, more so apparent to monitor those markers and relative to what we've just discussed. Um, two, two of our sponsors are really kind of coming into their own there, especially with Dr. Dean's health stacks um, coming to their own on prep. And also um, there's some new products coming as well, isn't there? Yeah, the Omega. The Omega I'm really excited for. Yeah, that looks really good. Um, just be prepared for any clients when this Omega comes out to have uh, some potential extra um, energy intake because they are addictive. I'm going to just put that out there. Oh, really? <laughs> They taste like uh, juicy fruit, the chewing gum juicy fruit. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really tasty, like, and the daily dose is six caps. So when you take the six caps, like, it's very easy to go, mm, I could have another six and think that there's no calories there. <laughs> it is a fat source. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, the, the positive health benefits you'll get from it anyway, but. Um, it's definitely going to be something that you're going to hear a lot of people talk about when they're on prep of, oh, I can't wait to eat this. It was part yeah. of my plan. <laughs> and then obviously the greens powder, we're, we're slowly waiting. We're in line at the manufacturing facility to be mixed. So yeah, if anyone's yeah. listening to this, I do apologize. It was supposed to be mixed in early December, but whatever's gone wrong with the manufacturing line, we're still in queue to be mixed. So hopefully that will be available by the end of February right. but again that's going to be another big game changer in how it tastes and how it mixes it, like if you if you use Nutridyne at the moment which I do myself the, the dark chocolate flavor of Nutridyne has that sort of earthy sort of bitterness to it yeah the, the greens powder that we've made doesn't and it mixes sort of almost um clear like a way icily okay um, and I think that's because a lot of these companies use a heavy dose of chlorella and, you know, some of the other um, algae-based greens in that they offer that sort of earthy taste. Whereas I've only put, I think, I think it was about 500 milligrams of chlorella into the greens powder. Yeah. I opted not to go super high in it because of the benefits of everything else that's in it. Yeah. Nice. That'd be a good addition. Lovely. Right, we'll leave it there, mate. Thank you for um, thank you for coming on, and we will um, we'll catch up soon. Catch up soon, Carl. Thanks very much.